Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Uh, this episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by Audible Theatre Presents Good Enemy, a world premiere play by Audible Theatre emerging playwright Yilang Lu, directed by Obi Award winner Che Yu, about a father who learns that closing the door to his past means shutting his daughter out. Good Enemy deftly weaves together the stories of two generations of two countries, the US and China, both during times of sweeping social changes, exploring the power of human connections. This smart, thrilling, and hopeful show features a road trip across America, theatrical flashbacks to 1984 China, action, suspense, secrets, discussions of generational trauma, and the bonding power of TikTok. The show stars OB Award winner Francis Ju, who was previously seen on Broadway in Pacific Overtures as well as soft power at the public. Previews for the show have already begun at the Manetta Lane Theater in New York City, and it will run for a strictly limited five-week engagement through November 27th. Tickets are available now at goodenemyplay.com. And for Books and Bubble listeners lucky enough to be in New York at this time, we have a special treat for you. If you use the code BOBA25, um, that's B-O-B-A-25, all caps, you'll be able to unlock a special discount on your tickets. Uh, specifically, if you purchase tickets through November 5th, you'll be able to unlock $25 tickets um, using the code. And if you purchase afterwards, you'll unlock a 25% discount. Again, the play is running through November 27th at the Manila Lane Theater in New York City. You can buy tickets at goodenemyplay.com. And don't forget to use the special Books and Boba discount code BOBA25, all caps. And if you do manage to catch this play, please let us know what you think on our Goodreads forums. Thanks again to Audible Theater Presents Good Enemy for supporting Books and Boba. And now, on with the show. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have an author chat with Ryan Lee Wong, the author of Which Side Are You On? Um, a new novel about activism and LA. And um, it was a really fun book. We had Ryan on to talk about his journey as a writer, his inspirations for um, his book, and also uh, engage in some New York, LA uh, food discourse. Yes, yes. West Coast, best coast. Is, <laughs> is that what they say? <laughs> at least in terms of Korean food. Um, yes, at least. And for those of you New Yorkers who take umbrage on our analysis, just come over here, eat our food, and find out for yourselves. Um but yeah, it was a really fun conversation. Um, the book itself, which side are you on, um, tells a story of of a 21-year-old Columbia University student, Reed, who returns to L.A. in the middle of the Akai Gurley, uh, Peter Liang protests that were happening in 2016 that he was a big part of. And, and of course, like every Asian American parent's fear, he says, I'm going to drop out of my Ivy League college to... Uh, solely um, participate in the protests and in uh, grassroots organization. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, But the twist in this story is uh, Reed's parents are themselves activists who were very involved in, in, in 
Korean Black solidarity movements in the 1980s. And so it is a story about two generations of activists coming to terms with each other, which is um, is a little different than the typical multi-generation Asian American stories that we, we get. Yeah, so here is our conversation with Ryan Lee Wong. And we are here with Ryan Lee Wong, the author of Which Side Are You On? Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. And you're calling from New York right now, right? Yeah, Brooklyn, New York. I was actually really surprised because um, your book takes place in Los Angeles and you wrote it with such vivid description. And Marvin and I were based in L.A., so a lot of uh, familiar sights were (laughs) in your book. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in L.A. I go back at least once a year and... um, I actually have a hard time writing about the place I'm in. So, you know, I've never written any fiction set in New York, really. Um, That's really funny because I feel like so much fiction is written, like, based in New York. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like I had to leave L.A. in order to have the perspective of what I wanted to say about it. (laughs) To be fair, a lot of fiction written in L.A. as well. But Um, I feel like... New York is like, I, I don't know, like more glamorized, like in, in fiction. I feel like New York is always depicted as much cooler than L.A., which is why <laughs> I'm always uh, really thankful when L.A. is written in fiction. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there is a New York bias, I think, in the literary world. Um, this is the center of the publishing industry. A lot of writers live here or move here. And so, of course, New York has a very storied um, presence in the literary imagination, um, which is also part of the reason I felt I had to write about Los Angeles. It was like, you know, I'd never seen a novel that quite captured my experience of L.A., which is, um, as you know, just driving around, going to strip malls, finding these like obscure little places and that being really like your life. Yeah, I mean, just existing as because I lived in D.C. for a few years, I feel like Existing as like someone from California, LA specifically in the East Coast is constant like PR image control of what people think we are and what we actually are. Yeah, when you read the New York Times, uh, the, I don't I don't know if this is intentional, but it's almost like they enjoy telling bad stories about LA. It's like, oh my god, the four hundred five is a chaos, or like, oh my god, the earthquakes and the fires, um, or you know, recently with the city council. Um, it's it's almost always bad news. And I think there's a little bit of uh, New York envy that creeps into the journalism. That's right. that's my um, yeah. take. As if the New York City Council isn't also very corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why I loved, um, you know, this isn't going to be a, a conversation about, you know, New York, L.A. beef. But I did enjoy that you included some New York, L.A. food beef in your book, um, especially the line about Korean food. Yeah. I mean, that was shocking to me when I got to New York. I was like, <laughs> I, I had totally taken for granted how good the Korean food is in L.A. because, of course, that's what I grew up with. And so, you know, people joke about this all the time, but there is truth to it. And like the different migration patterns that played out in the two cities, respectively, um, are very present in the food culture. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved, I had the opposite experience because I grew up in the East Coast and then I moved to L.A. And I was like, wow, the food is 
so good here. Um, I can never leave. And, <laughs> and and like when I went to school in New York, um, I was just so surprised by how expensive Korean food was. And I'm like, what is this? I can cook this in my own house for like half the price. And it's probably going to taste better than this. Yeah. <laughs> That's real. Um, yeah, I feel like we're starting. Uh, we're going to get some engagement on this episode about people about <laughs> new york korean food defenders if there are any um i'm wondering I'm ready. i mean i will say there is one michelin star uh korean restaurant in manhattan k-town so i will give them some credit you know after eating at a few michelin star places myself i don't know if i trust that guide as much as people should you know <laughs> yeah the the best way to like judge food is like okay like one, do you see any white people in the restaurant? <laughs> Two, who's serving the food? Is it like the ajumas who just kind of like throw food at you? And, you know, there's like, there's no customer service because customer service is how good the food is. So really, <laughs> standards are different. Yeah. 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 Well, back on track about the book. Um <laughs> Because we always like to start um, our interviews with authors asking about your journey to becoming a writer. Um, you know, before you wrote this novel, you know, you have a long storied, I guess, history. Uh, but you also were very involved in specifically Asian American writing and writing workshops and fellowships. Like you were a director at Kundiman, right? Yes, I was the managing director at Kundiman. Where oh, no, a lot of the authors that we've interviewed also, you know, came out of as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so can you tell us a little bit about how you got into writing and what led you to write this novel specifically? So for me, it starts, as always, with family history, you know. Um, so on my father's side, I'm sixth generation Chinese-American. And on my mother's side, you know, my mother's an immigrant from Korea. And my parents met during the Asian-American movement of the 1970s. They met at Berkeley. <laughs> so they were activists. Uh, they met as activists. And they, even though they made the choice never to really tell me that much about their past, that was always infused into my life. So community events, um, Asian American culture um, were always part of my consciousness. And so, you know, I got to New York after college. I started working in museums and quickly I became really curious about like that Asian American movement. So I started researching. I started to um, organize exhibitions about it. And even 10 years ago, like if you had, if you talk to even politically engaged younger Asian Americans, they might necessarily, they might not know about something like basement workshop or I hotel. And so that was really important to me to like tell those histories in uh, visual culture and talks, teach-ins, that kind of thing. And that also led me to like meeting this Asian American writers community. And that was really revelatory for me because, you know, I was going to events at Asian American Writers Workshop. I worked there for a little bit. Um, I met these people who had all done this thing called the Kundiman Fellowship. And there were all these like really brilliant um, living, working writers. And it was kind of the first time I had um, realized you could be a writer and not be dead, rich, <laughs> white, or a man, you know, because uh, that's what I thought of as like being a writer. Um, previously. And that's kind of like the, still the prevailing image of what it means to be a writer. 
So, um, so my path to writing was very much through and part of community. That's awesome. And I imagine, you know, every family is different. Um, there is a common through line for those of us who are like, say, second generation of like having that arts versus practicality tension with our parents. But hearing your story, I'm assuming your parents were cool with you getting to writing in the arts. Um, you know, they they never pressured me to be a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer. Um, so in that way, they're a little uh, unconventional. And I think because of their particularly um, unusual history themselves, you know, um, my dad went to law school, but it was this like very progressive um, it's called the people's college of law, you know? <laughs> um, and so, um, they knew they, they had no ground to stand on in terms of like <laughs> pushing me towards a traditional path. Um, that said, I, I think, uh, you know, when I said I wanted to get my MFA, they were a little like, okay. And like, what are you going to do with that? And, um, you know, maybe you could teach and like that, that kind of thing. So they, they are, uh, or they were very concerned with like what this life would look like. And again, there are so few models of how to make this kind of life work that, yeah. um, I yeah. think that was on their minds. They're yeah. still parents and I'm sure, you know, being from the activist space, seeing how hard it is to you know exist and to, to live in, like white dominated spaces, I'm sure there's some concern for <laughs> to make sure their kid is is doing okay. Um, I did like what you said about, you know, researching what's out there for Asian Americans, because I think something that really spoke to me in your book was the fact that like, you know, there's so much happening all the time that's like just shitty, right? And so many people want to do something about it. And there's such heightened emotions. Um, but a lot of the movements we see today are built on like what your parents built back in the civil rights movement during that era. And all it really takes is a quick search to kind of find people who've been doing this for a long time to learn. But a lot of people feel like they're the only ones or the first ones doing it. And, you know, uh, Rira and I come from, you know, also like advocacy and activist spaces too. And it's always, it's always cool to see young people get engaged, but also frustrating when they don't, seem to recognize that there ha there were people that came before them as well. Yeah. I mean, so I, I have two responses. Part of this is being young. You know, part <laughs> of this is a, pro a product of something about what your brain is doing when you're 18 to 20 and you're like really feeling the world for the first time in that way, like really feeling the political environment for the first way. So to some extent, it's always going to feel brand new to you. Like, I'm the first one to feel alienated. I'm the first one to feel racism. I'm the first one to feel misogyny or um, whatever it is. You know, that is a very, um, I think, natural part of just, like, being young. Uh, but the second part is, you know, and in particular for Asian America, um, these histories have been pretty um, consciously obscured from us and um, hidden from us. And so... You know, I always point out that um, Asian America was coined in 1968 as a political identity. And this was exactly the same time that the term model minority was being coined. And so it's obvious which one of those two definitions of Asian America, the mainstream press and academia at the time 
took up and championed and presented as the definition of what it meant to be Asian in America. Um, and they really ignored or tried to um, write off histories of leftism, of cross-racial solidarity, of Asian American feminism, which were um, very vibrant and active at the time. And you had protests all around the country, um, newspapers and periodicals all around the country. Um, so it's no accident, actually, that um, some younger activists, especially within Asian America, don't know this story. Yeah. And I love that your book is kind of that conversation, like, in in the palm of your hands, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's what the novel's for. Yeah. I do love that you open the quintessential LA experience, which is picking someone up at LAX. And, you know, you're introduced to uh, your, your main character, Reed's mother, who is... I guess to put it in like basic terms, not your typical like Korean mother, right? And that we see in these intergenerational stories. She's foul mouthed, she's loud, she's very opinionated, but she's also, she can communicate with her son, with her child, which is something that a lot of Asian American literature that we read, that communication is an issue, but in your book it isn't. And it was really cool to see a mother son relationship where they can still communicate with each other, but they still aren't. It's because of ideology instead of like, Language barriers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I was reading your bio and <laughs> there's a lot of similarities between the characters in your book and, and your life too. Um, so um, how much of, you know, your characters were based on you and your parents and how much did you like embellish a little bit? Um, so in a way, I can't really take credit for that innovation. Um, <laughs> and again, so much of writing is really just about naming your own experience first, like really looking at your own life. Um, and seeing how it's different from all the other stories you've ever read. And so it was as simple as that, really, even though that process took years. Um, and so the mother character, uh, you know, in real life, my mother was an activist. My mother did that kind of work on um, Black Korean relations in South LA in the 1980s. And part of writing this book was like, I've never seen a character like that on the page, you know, in fiction, um, let alone in like movies or whatever. And so um, that was one of the driving forces behind writing this was like, okay, if I don't tell a story like this, who's going to tell this story? Um, at the same time, I knew I didn't want to write a memoir or didn't want to write a nonfiction story about it because what needed to happen to me was to show not just the politics of the characters, but the internal and emotional transformations that they might go through. Um, because that to me is actually the heart of the story. Um, and those things are inherently political movements um, to, to really change one's heart space around a community, to change one's relationship to history and ancestry. Those are actually deeply political actions. And that is the kind of transformation that I think fiction lets you take um, a really front row seat to observe. There's a scene in the book where uh, Reed's friend CJ uh, tells him, you have to figure out that inherited shit before it fucks you up worse, fucking Korean moms. And she kind of infers that Korean immigrant moms tend to be unforthcoming with their past. And I think 
seeing the mom, seeing Reed's mom on page on the page, I was like, okay, like I don't know any Asian parents who were that vocal about their politics, but at the same time, it was very familiar because so many immigrant parents do keep secrets from their kids, and um, I just thought it was so interesting that uh, later on in your book, Reed has to Google his uh, parents' accomplishments. And um, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on just, like, on, like, having conversations about cross-generational activism? Yeah. So one way to tell, to summarize the book is it essentially takes all these conversations, all these hundreds of pages to get Reed and his mother to meet one time. Um, Can they meet? Can they actually see each other fully? And so the reason the novel works like that to me is, um, you know, as you pointed out, many immigrant parents, uh, many Korean women carry a lot of trauma. And of course, because if you just like peel back an inch of uh, Korean history in the 20th century, you open this like uh, flood of traumatic experience, you know? Um, And so what has to happen is both um, the mother has to be ready to tell her story and also Reed has to be ready to listen. Um, And at the beginning, he's not really. Um, she's not ready to trust him and he's not ready to receive whatever she's going to tell him. And they have to kind of rub up against each other um, to soften the edges, um, if that makes sense. And it actually is, in my opinion, a huge responsibility to listen to um, a parent's story, a grandparent's story, an elder's story. It's a huge gift. Um, In addition to often being very painful um, as a process. Um, And so if it is at all possible um, to have that kind of meeting and to have that conversation, um, I think that's everything because it transforms both people. And uh, when that opening happens, um, then for the first time, that person um, is not carrying that secret alone. Yeah, I mean... um... Your book reminded me a lot about my own experiences. I'm Korean American and um like I found out about like my grandparents also through Google <laughs> and through uh newspaper articles that like my, my parents would randomly send me being like, "Oh, by the way, like your great grandparents uh were freedom fighters against Japanese colonizers." Mm-hmm. And I'm like Great. Um, I wish you kind of talked to me about this when I was younger, but I definitely had to wait until they were willing to tell that part of their story. So I definitely related to that in your book. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing about many diasporas and like, you know, in the Korean diaspora, which I know, is that um, everyone's family, I think it's fair to say, has myth to it like to have survived Korea in the 19th and 20th centuries, people did and performed heroic feats um, as 
on par with anything in the Odyssey, on par with anything in Shakespeare, uh, on par with anything in uh, Korean traditional myth. I mean, this is why, um, you know, a lot of old myths, I think, are being revisited and used by um, contemporary writers in the diaspora and in Korea. Um, Because to tell the story of like, people walking from the north to the south or people being freedom fighters or people surviving the occupation. Um, it's, it's almost epic on a scale that's hard to comprehend in, at least for me, like my contemporary middle-class American life. And so we need something like storytelling to kind of break us open of um, the, the little like comfortable mind that I walk around with. Yeah. And, you know, it was only like two generations ago. And that's kind of wild to me because their experiences were just so different from ours, Uh, especially, like you said, like living as like a middle class citizen in America. Um, I do want to talk about, um, I guess, just like the topic of perfectionism in your book, because Reed seems to be so earnest and so goal-oriented on becoming the ideal activist. And, you know, it's to a point where he's worrying about how can I have fun and do yoga uh, with my mom while the world is burning. And with his mother, she is kind of reluctant to share her experience as um Um, as an activist in the 80s, because she doesn't have the perfect answers. So I just want to ask you to uh, kind of expand on that idea of perfectionism. Yeah, I think still kind of like the prevailing idea of revolution or big change is like, okay, we're going to have a really good analysis and then everyone needs to get on board with that analysis or we're going to kick you out. And if everyone just follows that analysis all the way to the end, we will win. Um, and that sounds maybe okay on paper, but once you actually start to like get in a room with people, it gets very messy very quickly. And so, um, you know, I think there is something really like wonderful and um, energizing about Reed's idealism. Like his aspirations are so high. He has like so much... Um, heart in a sense to see like radical change happen. And at the same time, he's too much in his head. He's like too much trying to figure things out with that big analysis, that big picture idea. So that when he's actually confronted with like real people and real situations, he kind of short circuits. He doesn't know what to do with that. And so um, what has to happen is he has to move a little bit from his head down to his heart into a more embodied understanding of what it means to affect change. And I think, you know, in, in the bigger scale and the bigger scheme of things, uh, ultimately we are bodies in rooms together in communities together, like communities are formed out of bodies moving together, not out of minds fighting each other. Um, and so one of the big lessons for Reed is, not that he's wrong or that his ideas are off. You know, all of his analyses on some level, I think, are correct. 
Um, but he has to hold those analyses with a little more gentleness as he um, becomes a little bit more embodied in his relation to the world. Um, we kind of jumped the gun, but uh, so for our listeners out there who haven't read um, Which Side Are You On? It takes place around 2016 uh, during the protests uh, of the Akai uh, Gurley shooting. Um, what compelled you to set your story specifically during that time period? Yeah. So, you know, again, in real life, I was um, going to a lot of Black Lives Matter protests in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, I was doing some volunteering with this organization, CAV, Organizing Asian Communities. Um, and I was spending a lot of time in Chinatown. And so when um, this young Black man named Akai Gurley was shot and killed in a public housing stairwell, and then it turned out the police officer who shot him was Chinese-American, you know, I think uh, uh, a lot of us were nervous to see what would happen. And what happened, of course, is um, you had these mass, mass protests where tens of thousands of Chinese-Americans came out defending Peter Leong um, because he was the one police officer in all of these scores of killings who was indicted. And so <clears throat> these um, mass protests were a little bit shocking to me. You know, how is it that here we had been doing all these workshops, all these like conversations around Black Asian solidarity, uh, looking at our histories as Asian Americans, and then we're vastly outnumbered by this other group of people. And um, there was a lot of pain in the communities I was in at the time and a lot of pain in myself. And I really like didn't know what to make of this. And so in a way um, that drove me to ask some of these bigger questions about what does it mean to be in community? How do we talk across what we perceive as other sides of a conflict, other sides of the aisle? Um, and how do we start to have conversations across generations and across different political beliefs? Yeah, I remember during that time having the same kinds of thoughts, which is like, I guess it's cool that, you know, I mean, they're at the same time elder, but also newer, right? A lot of the the people organizing were of the more recent waves of immigration, right? And kind of puts into context the um the not transit the um i guess fluctuating nature of the asian american community where we're we're a community of waves of immigration and you know depending on when you came your politics are different your circumstances are different um and to see that you know sure you're organizing because you feel that you've been that this thing is unfair but the reasons are kind of skewed, I guess. Um, I guess it was a really weird time because, you know, 
a lot of us and um, a lot of us were probably our first time um, for a lot of us, you know, it involved not only seeing this discrepancy, but also having these arguments in our own homes too, right? Like when you really like, because to be an immigrant is also, especially like a, a minority immigrant is a constant struggle to even survive in, in this country. And so, you know, what level, like, I think these are the, these are the themes that also stuck out in your book too. It's just, um, you know, Reed's personal struggle with knowing that he came from a privileged upbringing and what does that mean for his own activism, right? And what side, like, you know, what side is he on? What side should he be on? And why is everyone else on their sides? More of a statement than a question. Um. Yeah. So, you know, one of the other dynamics that drove me to write this book was not just seeing the Leon Gurley situation, but remembering for the first time in years that my mom had, you know, worked on Black Korean issues in South LA in the 1980s. And so what occurred to me then was this was actually a cyclical history. Um, we were repeating so many of the same tropes, so many of the same uh, debates. The media was covering the issues in a very similar way. Um, and my idea at the time was, okay, maybe if we told these two stories side by side, um, we might get some more perspective. We might start to break open this cycle a little bit so that we're not just going to do it again in another 20, 30 years. And, you know, as you pointed out, with this community of um, aggrieved Chinese Americans, from the perspective of a group of people who has been, uh, you know, marginalized, ignored by politicians, media, social structures, um, who often feels on the outskirts of American society, that response to the Peter Leon case makes absolute sense. It's only when you take the larger context of American history and the histories of enslavement and mass incarceration and policing that the response does not make sense. And of course, that community was probably not given um, access to or encouraged or um, offered those contexts, those histories. And so this is why storytelling and this is why really um, the community organizing starts with um, understanding one's personal history and also our collective history as uh, people who, um, you know, have been placed in these positions of violence actually against each other. Um, this was no accident. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the, um, the 1992 uprisings and I remember I was, I mean, I grew up in San Gabriel, which is like east of LA. So when, and I was here in 1992, but when that was happening, it felt like it was happening somewhere else. And so, you know, my recollection of it was there was something bad happening downtown, but that was all it was. It wasn't until I took Asian American studies in college, you know, we watched Saigu, that the mere fact that it was the black community pitted against the Korean community, that I finally learned that, that media narrative. And so 
context is everything, especially when it comes to these really complicated, um, but honestly not really that complicated. If you, if you sit down and think about who has power and who doesn't, you know, it's hard to have that open mind sometimes, right? Especially when you're, you're younger, especially when the emotion is, is heightened like that. Yeah, reconciling your privilege with what's happening, um, you know, what, what injustices are happening in, in your community right outside your back door. Yeah, it can, it can be really hard to navigate. Um, yeah, like, uh, what did you know about, like, the 92 riots um, since you grew up in uh, L.A.? Yeah, sure. So I was, I was four <laughs> in 1992. Oh. <laughs> so I was a little too young to, like, remember them crisply. So my main memory, and I think this is why the book is also structured this way, is that it was kind of a haunting, you know? So my first memories actually were being very young and there being these like empty lots around Los Angeles. And my parents like would point to their friends or they would point to visitors from out of town and say like, oh, you know, that burned down. And one of those lots was, you know, uh, a two minute drive from my house. Uh, like I could walk there and, you know, we lived in the Fairfax area. So like pretty far West um, relative to like what, what people think as the epicenter of the uprisings. And, you know, later that was the strip mall <laughs> that burned down strip mall was where I would go to buy like art supplies and where I'd go to get subway sandwiches. And so the entire city had kind of this sense of there being this massive repressed history um, so like there was no marker to talk about the riots. There was nothing to indicate that, um, this, the site we were on had burned down. It was just transformed into another like banal site of consumerism. Um, and so, you know, fiction wise, I was really interested in other writers who tried to talk about really massive histories, but through the everyday, because that was my experience of the uprising in any way. It's this massive thing that, you know, touches every person who was in Los Angeles at the time. It's this massive shared experience, but how do we relate to it? Um, how do we talk about it? How do we memorialize it or not memorialize it? And so that's why so much of the action of the story is really just um, the two of them driving around and kind of like pointing at things out the window and visiting these everyday sites um, because those everyday sites are actually rich with history. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you a question about just like self-care because Reed's mother, you know, she's taking him to get a haircut to the Korean spa, which I thought was a very, very specific Korean trait that I like could totally um, understand. Uh, but Reed is burnt out. He is pretty much saying, I'm a failure. I fucked up in friendship and the movement and, you know, my part to go against capitalism. Uh, so just like, can you tell us your thoughts on burnout syndrome among activists and how self-care is important to, you know, it's important to like balance fun with morals? So. I will say first burnout and Reed has to learn this is itself um, a symptom or an effect of 
capitalism and capitalism winning. And so I think on some level, Reed believes that if he like totally exhausts himself in the movement, he's going to achieve some like noble state when in fact, um, you know, part of what uh, this capitalist system makes you do is uh, give everything up so that you have nothing left. You're, you're treated like a commodity, like a machine. And so um, Reed's mother, of course, realizes this, and that's why she's trying to get him to turn a little towards um, pleasure and fun. And I think what Reed starts to realize and um, what I think a lot of people in movement work uh, do recognize now, even more than maybe 10 years ago, is that um, you're actually not going to win without pleasure, without fun. Um, you're, and like, you know, no one wants to be in a revolution where there's no fun, like whatever that is, whatever that looks like, that's not where I want to be, you know? Um, and so what he has to learn is to like incorporate that into himself, into his everyday life. And one, one just note I'll say on like self-care, I think self-care can of course be co-opted as Reed points out, you know? Uh, self-care has been so co-opted it just means like paying too much for matcha lattes and uh you know as a as a buddhist i have to say um there's no such thing as a separate self right so to actually care for one's body and one's mind is actually to care for other people and so if you're able to care for um the mind and body in a way that's not about individualism it's not about extracting but that recognizes this um, interconnection between us, then it is a profoundly political act. I have to say uh, the Korean spa descriptions were just, it just brought me back. Uh, (laughs) I never did the scrub down because, uh, I don't know, it just always felt like it was too much. Uh, Have you (laughs) done the scrub down at, at Korean spas? By any chance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've gotten a scrub. And kind of like Reed, you know, my first time getting wet, I was shocked. I could not believe how uh, intimate it was and also how painful it was. And I was like, what? what is it about our people that this is, like, relaxation? <laughs> like, what is about our people who are, like, having this, like, really big dude just, like, um, go at you with this rough cloth? And, you know... Reed's mom actually makes the joke like, oh, isn't it hard work taking care of yourself? And again, it's like, um, once you really start to look at the categories of like care and work and start to like have a little levity around them, um, sometimes it's not as clear uh, what is, what is care and what is work and what is fun. And um, it's really just about bringing a sense of um, curiosity and freshness to each thing. Yeah, I have not had a scrub down yet. So I don't think my book it's is going to convince anyone to get it. <laughs> it. It's actually debated that it's bad for you because it damages your skin because it's so rough. No. So, yeah, like even my mom says like, oh, don't use the 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 de- towel because it, it will like scratch your skin and like make blood vessels uh, pop. And was, so it's like, that's not what you said when I was a teenager. <laughs> so <laughs> I read something online. 
Well, the book is Which Side Are You On? It's on sale now at booksellers everywhere. It's a wonderful book. And I want to thank you, Ryan, for writing a book that not only speaks to our, our activist hearts, but also our LA hearts as well <laughs> for painting such a, mm-hmm. such a wonderful picture of, of our city too. Um, I guess before we go, are you working on anything else right now? Yeah, I have thoughts. You know, I have some nonfiction and some fiction I'm working on. Um, but mostly, you know, I'm part of a Zen community. And so I'm trying to maintain my daily meditation routine to stay grounded among all of the book excitement. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us on this podcast. Yeah, thank you both. It's been a great conversation. And that was Ryan Lee Wong, the author of Which Side Are You On? Um, available now at booksellers everywhere, including our Books and Boba online bookstore. As always, if you purchase books on the Books and Boba bookshop, you not only support your local bookstores, but also our podcast. So we really appreciate any support you can give. All right. So before we go, uh, we still have a little time left in October. Um, so Rira, please remind us what we are reading this month for Book Club. We are reading The Hole by Hye Young Pyeon. This is a bestseller in Korea, a psychological thriller about um, a man who wakes up from a coma after a devastating car accident that took his wife's life and left him paralyzed and badly disfigured. Uh, his caretaker is his mother-in-law, and um, there are some dark secrets that are happening. So it is a very unsettling book. I'm really excited to get into it and end Spooktober with a bang. Yeah, I've been saving this book specifically for Halloween weekend um, to end Spooky Month. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to uh, to get into all the drama next week on our book club discussion. Um, but until then, um, if you have finished the book and want to provide some feedback of your own, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. We always love to include the thoughts of our book club members in our discussion whenever possible. So um, definitely let us know what you think of the whole. Uh, but until then, uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, thank you to Ryan Lee Wong again for joining us on the podcast. And we'll see you all next time. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Raman. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there. 
But have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lunyang, and many. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. 